Praise the Lord. So what is, what is it for? Thank you, Father, for Pastor Zach. Thank you for his zeal and his knowledge, Lord. Thank you for the anointing that is on his life. I pray for a blessing upon him, and I pray your blessing upon this offering as we receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's the weirdest thing for me to to have that. So, tis tis my awkwardness in the moment. So, um, well, it is it is just is a privilege and an honor to be able to to stand here and to deliver a message every week with you guys and to uh, to talk through what what God has been laying on my heart and uh, to share in community with each of you guys. So this is a special time, special time for sure. Um, we do not take it lightly. So we have been going through a few. Um, oh yeah, our dinner today. That's good. That's a Buon Natale is uh, Merry Christmas in Italian. So, there you go. Buon Natale. Put your hand up like that while you're saying it too, and it makes it even better. Buon Natale. Wonderful. So, uh, so yeah, eat a lot of it, because there's tons and tons of just pastas and things like that over there that's just going to be delicious. So take it with you, too. It'll be wonderful. Um, so, we have been going through the last two weeks. Uh, we started... A, a new little mini-series on a book by a guy named St. Athanasius um, called On the Incarnation. Um, he wrote this work, actually, uh, there's a little bit of, of, of debate on when he actually wrote this, if he was kind of in his uh, mid to late 20s, or if it was after the Council of Nicaea, whenever they actually came through and, uh, and wrote, actually, the, the Nicene Creed. We sang about that at the very end of the service. I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ his Son. That is actually derived from the Nicene Creed. So <clears throat> a very, 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 very important document that uh, was created by about 300 bishops in, uh, uh, in response to a debate that was going on within the church back in those times. They were debating on the uh, legitimacy of Christ as being either derived or a created being or if he was the same as God. So they were trying to figure out <coughs> if Jesus was eternal, was co-eternal with God, or if he was actually the first created being. And there was a heresy going around called Arianism. And Arianism taught that Jesus was the first created being, which means that he was not co-eternal, which means that he was not equal to God, in a sense, denying the Trinity. And this is a big part of what we believe as being Christ. We, we have the Godhead. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so that belief system was denying God the Son as being co-eternal in the Godhead of the Trinity. And so this was really, really, really big because this would negate the deity of Christ and him coming to earth, living a perfect life, and then dying on the cross, being risen from the grave three days later for our, taking our sin and our punishment with him on the cross and then raising victoriously. So that would deny much of the salvation that we have today, and it would be a very, very, very difficult thing to grasp for us to be able to have that within Christianity. And so this was a very important topic that they went through. And so realistically, this work on the Incarnation and the one that, was previ that came previously before that 
um, against the Gentiles, or another uh, duration or translation of it is against the, uh, uh, the uh, oh my gosh, um, heathens, against the heathens. I almost said heretics, that wasn't a word. Against the heathens. And so he had this t- kind of two-part work talking about and against the Gentiles, talked about the problem of idolatry in the world and in Christendom. And then the second part on the incarnation, which is kind of what we're, we've been touching on here, um, is really going through what it means now for Christ to come and to take place of those idols and to remove those things from our lives and our hearts and then really accept the full salvation that God has for us, um, not taking up anything else in its place. And so it also affirms Christ as being the Son of God but being co-eternal. So this is very, very important, very great for us to know and to have an understanding of some things. And I know that this is a little bit different. I told you guys at the start of this, uh, of, of this series that this is a little bit different because it goes a little bit more into some church history and talks about some things, but I think it's very important for us to know where we came from, why we believe what we believe, and where we get this stuff. It's not just something we came up with and we think it's really great, and we just started talking about how good it's going to be for us. This is something that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, and it affirms what Scripture says, it affirms what the early church says, it affirms what the early church fathers have also taught for us. So it's very important for us to know some of these things for us here. So what I want to do is I want to go, instead of just looking at Athanasius' writings, let's go to the very first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis. We're going we're gonna to be in here, we're going to do uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll get into some of the material from Athanasius. It says here, it says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his son, uh, or to his brother, (laughs) to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on, uh, favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So this, you're probably wondering, how on earth does this have to do 
with Christmas or the incarnation. <laughs> so this is, this is a really interesting story that we find as the first group of individuals are outside of the garden now, the first family unit provided now in a life that was soon to be pushed forward for everybody else afterwards. We see that uh, right before this, that God in chapter 3, he tells uh, Adam that he was going to work or to till the ground. That was going to be his thing. He was going to have to labor in the process of, of, of taking his crops. Now, this is a little bit different than what he was able to do beforehand when he was in the garden because it was not a laborsome activity. It was something that he was able to do with the, uh, with the lightness and, and, the, and the willfulness of the obedience to the Lord. And so it wasn't difficult in the sense of, of like, man, I just had a hard day of work. It was very accomplishing, and it was something that was expanding what God had given them as they were producing and pushing Eden. And so it was very important that he was able to do this, and it was a joyous occasion. I mean, he loved going through and, and doing this process. And, and so whenever they sinned, they went outside the, the realm of what some would call paradise in that aspect. And he went outside of paradise, and now— he was having to deal with things and work hard and have to labor through all the things that he did in order to yield a crop from the ground. And this is very interesting because this may be um, a, a position where you find the first thought process of a misunderstanding of identity with a biblical character after the garden. You see, Cain took up the same occupation of his father. He went and he worked the ground. He yielded fruits. That's what he did. Abel went through and he dealt more with shepherding the sheep. So Adam did do some, some naming and some things like that, and they were supposed to have dominion over the area and to subdue the land and all that stuff. Um, but as far as the occupation that was assigned to, to Adam after the garden, tilling the ground and working the ground was the thing that he was made to do. And then so Cain took up after his dad as the firstborn, continued on in his dad's footsteps and, and decided to do that. And then Abel now was the one who was shepherding and, and working with the sheep and dealing with that. And, and they both brought an offering to the Lord. Now, it's very vague in this, in this place of why specifically God liked the sacrifice from Abel rather than Cain. The Bible is not very specific in this passage of why that occurred. But if you look through some New Testament passages and you start to, to read through the narrative that the Bible opens up, you can start to notice that there is something that all scholars um, that I have seen in, in my commentary research is that they all agree that there is a position of the heart that is brought, to, brought forth and brought to light. And then you start to see this peek through in Cain's conversation with the Lord before he kills Abel. So you see Cain was milling through and he was doing doing his job and then he just brought fruit forth he thought that this if i do a job if i just work then i provide it there and then the lord will bless it whereas abel in his heart posture was to bring the fatty part the fatty portion the 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 valuable piece of the animal and to present that to the lord the one that is that is desired because remember it says it says there in the early from, from verse 2 through 3, I believe, or 2 through 4. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. It doesn't say anything about the best fruits. It doesn't say anything about the type of fruit. It just says some. He brought some fruits. And then after that, it says, 
And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The fat portion is the most desired portion of that place. And you can see throughout the, the Old Testament representation of sacrifices that the fat portion is the one that is always offered to the Lord. That is, a, that is one that is very desired by the Lord. And so you see the position of their heart as you read through the text, it just says some of the fruits, but then it says the fatty portions, the desired portions. So it looks like their heart's position was not just, oh, I'm doing work, I'm going to throw it up here. But it was like, I'm offering the best that I have to the Lord in this place. And then the Lord talks to Cain before he kills Abel. And he's like, look, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will be accepted. Will you not be accepted? But if you, uh, sorry, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but must, but you must rule over it. This is very reminiscent. If you know anything about the book of James, you can see where James could have gotten some of this material as well. James talks about how we are tempted and enticed by the desires of our, of the flesh, by the desires of your heart. Other version says you're drug away by your passions, your fleshly passions. And so you can see where James pulls from this story as a reminder of what could happen in the ultimate yielding to sin is that death occurs. And he even talks about that. There, there's a process of a seed, and the seed as it grows and as it, as it moves, it actually takes over, and then it produces death in your life. And so he brings this portion on. And so we see that this could also be a, a misunderstanding of Cain of what he was just supposed to do. Just, just live his life by works, which Paul talks a lot about. If you work, bam, that's all you got to do. You just got to put your stuff up there and you're good to go. But it's the position of your heart that the Lord is really seeking after and what you're actually offering him. And you'll see that as someone else gets blessed for what they are doing, if you allow envy and you allow jealousy to earth up into your heart because you wanted to receive what they had and so you despise them you will find that you will start to either inside you start to kill that relationship you have with them or you may even backbite you may put their name down and you may despise them in that moment and that does not yield good fruit and in other senses you actually act out physically and that ends up being a very negative aspect of of our walk with the lord and then you continue and saying how does this have to deal still with christmas and with the incarnation so let's bring up uh, a, a couple things that Athanasius says here. And this is what he talks about in the midst of purity of the heart. He says, for when the mind of human beings has no intercourse with bodies, nor has mingled with it from outside anything of their desires, but is entirely above them. So talking about when your mind is not given to the flesh, when you are not manipulated by your fleshly desires and overcome to the point to where you're enacting on what your flesh wants to because your mind has, sub has been subjected to your flesh. It's entirely above them. Your mind is set entirely above them as it was in the beginning, talking about Eden. Then transcending the senses of all human things, it is raised up on high and beholding the word sees in him also the father of the word taking pleasure in contemplating him and being renewed by its desires for him. So whenever you subdue the flesh, whenever you're able to rule over your flesh, as, as Paul even says, walk in the spirit and you won't uh, fulfill the desires of the flesh because the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. When we're able to, to 
to not conform to the ways of the world by, by, by not doing the things that the flesh desires, then being transformed by the renewing of our minds, we are able to see Christ, see the cross, and in seeing the cross, we see God the Father. And in seeing God the Father, we have love and an understanding of love that is greater than any of the desires that you would have for the flesh, which then leads you to walk in obedience to the Lord. Because whenever you look at the face of Christ, when you're able to see Jesus in the midst of your circumstances, when you can see God and you can sense the Holy Spirit in the midst of what's going on over your frustration with a spouse or your frustration with a, with a friend or maybe your frustration with a boss or frustration with what's going on or maybe your disappointment with different individuals, when you're able to look above that and suppress the, the, the desire to lash out against these people and see the cross, then in seeing the cross, you can now have the love and compassion that you need in order to walk in humility, walk in empathy, walk in compassion, and then walk in wholeness because you are not defined by someone else's opinions of you. You're not defined by someone else's actions towards you. You're not defined by the past that has happened to you, but you're actually defined by the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. And this is why the incarnation is so important because this deals heavily with our understanding of the power and the nature of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. The entirety of On the Incarnation, this, this book, is to focus you back to the cross. It's to look back to the cross and everything that you do. Because if we are not looking at the cross, then we are forgetting what Christ has done for us in the midst of these things. And we become elevated in that sense. He also says this about idols of material and spiritual nature. He says, but human beings, being again foolish, <clears throat> despising the grace thus given to them, so turned away from God and darkened their own soul that they not only forgot the concept of God, but also fashioned for themselves others instead. So they fabricated idols for themselves instead of the truth and honored beings which do not exist rather than God who is, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 25. And then going much worse, they even transferred the honor due to God to wood and stones and every material object and even to human beings. And went even further than this, as we described in former, the former work um, called Against the Gentiles, he said they were so impious that they even thereafter worshipped demons and called them gods, fulfilling their own desires. And so we see, bless you, we see this, uh, this progression that's made as, as we go throughout um, our own thought process and our own hearts. <coughs> so he said they turned away from God, fashioned for themselves things that they desired first. <coughs> and in that position, started worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Transferring that, that honor that they have for God to items and to articles and to things that are around them. So bringing your attention just to, uh, it could be, to, could be so something like as easy as social media where all of your attention is wrapped up in social media. It could be wrapped up in your job. It could be wrapped up in other responsibilities. It could be wrapped up in just wanting to um, just relax and not do anything because you deserve to just relax outside of relaxing in the presence of the Lord, relying on other things to, to, to bring you peace instead of the actual one who is the Prince of Peace. And then they move from things to people. Because then once you start to be dissatisfied with, with an article or an item, then you need something that can provide some sort of relationality. And so this starts to 
um, become a position to where you idolize could be a pastor, you could idolize a friend, you could idolize a boss, you could idolize a spouse, you can idolize your children, you can start to idolize these other things to where all of your attention and all of your affection all goes wrapped up into one thing to the position where you are at every beck and call of their obedience instead of obeying God as you're supposed to. And then moving from that position. There's a lot of people who they're still, they're still being honoring with their spouse, but to the point to where they actually idolize them, then dishonoring them because they're putting too much pressure on them to be God instead of God being God. You've lost sight of the cross because you're looking at someone else to fulfill your desires that they were never supposed to fulfill. Because before you met them, who was your God? If they pass, then who is your God? Same thing with your children. That's why I think that there's a lot of parents that they struggle after their children become, uh, become young, young men and young women to the point where they leave the nest and they go somewhere else. They go, go off to college or they move away. They just move out of the house. It's, it's almost an identity crisis because so much of the attention has been placed upon them that they don't know what direction they're supposed to go into anymore because they don't hear the voice of God for themselves. They've just heard the voice of their child and tried to fulfill every single thing that that child needs without actually listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, trying to be that child's friend instead of being their parent. This could also be a political figure. We see that people lean heavily on a political figure to be the one that, that fulfills um, some kind of salvation for what they deem as improper or incorrect. And I'm a firm believer that the Lord puts people in the, in the correct places that they're supposed to be in, that he will, he will position people in specific places for specific times and will fulfill his will through their leadership, whether they desire to or not. There will be something that could come good from that person being in an office. And so if that's the case, then we don't need to idolize that individual because it is not the individual that placed themselves there. It is the Lord who placed them in that position. So to call them an ultimate prophet and to say that they are the ultimate person that needs to be in that spot and everything that they say is absolutely gold, is absolutely incorrect. <laughs> because they are fallible as a human. There is not one person that is going to be perfect in leadership. Not one person. There's some things you can admire about different individuals, and that's wonderful. There's some great things that different political figures can do, and that's amazing. And we're supposed to pray. I mean, we went through this in the book of Titus and Timothy in those series, and we're supposed to pray for these individuals and pray that the Lord just, just uh, enraptures their soul and, and causes them to, to walk in holiness and righteousness and that their policies will also follow the biblical principles so that we can have a good value system and good ethics and good morals and that these things can be passed throughout, not just in our workplaces or our states, but also in our schools and in the places where all of our kids are being raised and these people are being influenced. That's going to be wonderful and amazing. But I'm not putting my whole stock into an individual to be the salvation that our country or our people need. The, the salvation that our country needs is Jesus. And the way that they get that is through the body of Christ being the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is not completely whole if they are not looking at the cross as their main category of, of humility. We're not placing their heart at the foot of the cross. Scripture says we're supposed to take up the cross daily and follow after him. Some of us are taking up the cross every once in a while and kind of walking in a general direction that he may be going. But can we pick up the cross daily and can we walk with him? 
with keeping the cross in the forefront, in our, in, our, in our main center of attention. I'm not saying that we're neglecting things on the side, but as you see the cross, you see Christ. And as you see Christ, you see the Father. And as you see the Father, you recognize the spirit that is within you, which is the Holy Spirit. And as you recognize the Holy Spirit that's within you, then you can walk in humility. You can walk in righteousness. You can walk in purity. You can walk in holiness. You can walk in what God has called you into because you are very aware of the sacrifice that Christ made and the power of God to raise him from the grave and to provide you the salvation that completely changed you and transformed you from a sinner into a saint. You got the thing? He also says this about about Christ being a good king. Moreover, a king being human does not permit the lands established under him to pass to and serve others. So it doesn't pass to and serve others, but he doesn't abandon them to others either. But he reminds them with letters. So a good king will remind people with letters of what needs to be done. And often he enjoins them by friends, sending friends and people. And then if need be, he comes himself. Shaming them by his own presence as they realize the, the things that they were doing that was incorrect. So that not only they serve, so, so, that, so only that they not serve others and his working in vain. But how much more will God allow his own creatures not to be led astray from him and serve things that do not exist? In particular, since such error is in the cause of their destruction and disappearance, it was not right that those who had once partaken of the image of God should be destroyed. So what's he saying here? He's saying that, that a, a good king will send letters to his people in his, in his establishment. He's not just going to let the land do whatever it wants to and just kind of live on and hope that all things work out all right or decently. He sends letters to these different places, checks in with his friends and sends friends over to these different places to make sure that, that all, the, all the people and all the places in his kingdom they're operating in the way that they should be. And then if there's some real issue and some real things that are happening, then he himself will go to that land and will correct it. As the king's presence is made known, as the, as the army has surrounded him, and you can see and you can hear the trumpets blowing, and you can hear and see all the grandness that comes with the king coming up into the place, the people will shudder in the realization of the things that they are struggling with and the things that they know they weren't doing correctly and begin to make things right and repent. <laughs> When confronted with these things. And then so what Athanasius is saying, he's, he's saying, look, if, if a good king will do this activity, then how much more do you think that God desired for this? From the beginning of time when you see this depiction of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and these people, that as sin continued throughout, that God sent letters, he sent prophetic words to people who also, who were friends, of his in the Old Testament, and they delivered these messages to the people of God to remind them to draw back to repentance. You look all throughout of the Old Testament, you see time and 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 time again that as the Israelites walked away from the Lord and, and took up idols and took up all these things that God sent a, a prophet or a judge to come back and to remind them to fall back at the feet of, of the Lord and to, and to surrender themselves once again to be obedient to what God had established and had drawn them to and to cast away their idols, cast away the things that are driving them away from honoring God and walking in the way that they were supposed to and called to as people of God 
who are supposed to infect the nations with the good news, who are supposed to transform places as the representatives of his people. And so time and time again, you see, just like a good king, he would send a letter. He would send his friend. We have tons of this throughout the Old Testament. You see all the books of the prophets. You see all the, all the things from the Torah. You see all the things from the poetic let- literature. All these things that were written and described and communicated from these friends of God to his people. But yet, they continued in their rebellion. They continued in, in walking out in unrighteousness. And so the king entered the room. Which is where you see from John 1, which we read the last two weeks, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. So you have Christ in the beginning, and then you see him coming into the land, being made known, the king, which is why this is so important. He was not, he was not a lowly created being coming just as a representative. He is God. God made flesh, dwelling among us, and as he would walk into places, the demons would shudder. Those in unrighteousness would be either agitated to the point of persecution, or they would be agitated to the point of deliverance. And then in that place, you saw the king start to make known what is right and what was real and what was actually being written in the Old Testament, revealing the nature of those words. As you see in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he reveals what the law was actually communicating, not just external activity of just doing right things, but it's the heart of the man, the heart of the person, the heart of the human, and that is what the Lord is after, to transform that so then your actions follow those things. And so we see this is the importance of Jesus made flesh, come as a baby, not, not just being a, uh, and this is why Joseph was not his, his natural father. This is why Joseph and Mary didn't get together and then they had baby Jesus as far as like they came together as one and then they had a natural child like, like we all get to participate in and see. But, but it was something that was, that was other than, it was something that was immaculate, immaculate conception. And through this, you see that the Lord was able to see Christ on the earth. This is why it's important that Jesus was not just a created being, but he was already. He was and is and is to come. So what then would, was God to do, or what should be done, except to renew again in the image, so that through it human beings would be able to once again know him? But how could this have occurred except by the coming of the very image of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? For neither by human beings was it, it, was it possible, since they were created in the image, but neither by angels, for they were not even images. So this couldn't be an angel come. We've seen angels all throughout the Old Testament. People were visited by these messengers, and they were able to receive some great things. But Jesus was not, a, was not an angel just come around and walking around on the earth. 
That was another belief system that was improper and incorrect in those days that they were trying to push that Jesus was not even flesh. He was just a spiritual being that came and manifested himself and shown himself. And then when it came time, then he was raptured up. Very incorrect. That would also negate the option of or the ability for us to have salvation. He was also because I, s- I just talked about how it wasn't just Mary and Joseph having a boy and then that boy having a Christ spirit come upon him and walking in the earth. And then when he went to the cross, the Christ spirit left him so that he could die. That was another heresy that was taught around those times that they believed that it was just a, f- a very good man that the Christ spirit came and dwelt upon him. And then whenever Christ went to the cross, then the Christ spirit left him, allowing him to die, meaning that Christ actually didn't die. It was just a man negating, once again, the salvation that's offered to us. This is how the enemy is trying to come in and manipulate people's understanding and validity of Jesus Christ. We sang at the very at the very end of that that last song, the, the this I believe uh, the night, the the creed singing it. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. If we truly believe that, it's not just the name Jesus Christ because this is the way that we communicate his, his name in English. So it's not just a magical phrase, Jesus Christ. It's not saying it in Hebrew. It's not saying it in Greek. It's not saying it in, in Spanish. It's not saying it in, in Japanese. It's not say, I mean, you can go through any language, and it's not just saying the name that brings the power of, of, of Christ. It's not the name, just a, just a name that you just say flippantly, and it's an abracadabra kind of thing. This is the weightiness of the words, at, or the weightiness of the name as it comes out of your now, mouth as you believe in this, in this Christ, in Jesus. You believe in who Christ is and what he's done for you. You believe these things, and in the weightiness of your belief, you will see that there are things that happen as you understand what he means to you. But if you have a very low view of Christ, it's very easy for us not to see things happen because your belief doesn't extend and uh, doesn't overextend and transcend your circumstance. Your circumstance ends up being your idol because you fall subjected to that thing instead of knowing that Christ is greater than that thing. So the word of God came himself in order that he, being the image of, of the Father, the human being in the image, might be recreated. It could not, again, have been done in any other way without death and corruption being utterly destroyed. So he rightly took a mortal body that in it death might henceforth be destroyed utterly and human beings be renewed again according to the image. For this purpose then, there was need of none other than the image of the Father. This is why Jesus Christ came. Because there could be no other way that we receive salvation except for through Christ. The misappropriation of, of the will of man was seen in the, in the Garden of Eden whenever Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. They chose to listen to another voice, and so there had to be a resetting of, uh, of the image bearer of what it means to be an image bearer of God and what better way to do this than by seeing Christ and understanding what that means for us, where now we have, we have him whom we can look to in the midst of all these things. I'll end with this, because I know that we're approaching time. Uh, in, in a book by, it, uh, many of you guys know uh, one of my, my professors, uh, Dr. Connie Dawson. She wrote a, a great book um, called The Life and Ministry of John Wimber. If you've not 
read through that book or gotten that book, I highly encourage you to do so because it is full of great, rich history from the 20th century and what God was doing in the midst of the renewal movement and the life of John Wimber. Um, he was the one who was over uh, the vineyard movement and actually like saw amazing things happen and was a huge voice in the midst of charismatic movement, bringing correction to lots of misappropriate, uh, lots of wacky things that were happening in, in, uh, in Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostalism. So very, very, uh, very, very happy that she did that work. But um, in the forward to it, uh, Dr. Randy Clark, the president of the seminary that I, that I attended, he wrote about a story because he was one of John Wimber's right-hand guys and traveled with him for, for many, many years. And so he was one of his spiritual fathers. And he said this. He said, I will never forget one of my first experiences with John. He had told me to be his shadow in several meetings, to follow him around, uh, observing what the father was doing, and then, at the end of the meeting, asking John questions about it. So during one such night of shadowing at a Methodist church, I observed that everyone he prayed for was healed. I was amazed. The next night, everyone he prayed for was not healed. I was perplexed. <laughs> when I started to ask John why, he stopped me and said, let me tell you what your question is. Then he told me correctly what I was about to ask and proceeded to give me his answer. I had no more faith last night than I did tonight. I had no more sin in my life tonight than last night. Both nights I prayed, come Holy Spirit, and blessed what God was doing. Last night, everyone was healed. But I didn't go into bed thinking I was a great man of faith or a great man of God. Tonight, no one was healed, and I'm not going to bed feeling like a great failure of God. Tomorrow, I will get up and do it all over again. And in that moment of seeing John in weakness, I truly understood his utter dependence upon God and how he was able to stand on his rug of peace when ministering. I learned that his rug of peace consisted of God's grace and later renamed it the rug of grace in my teachings. I think it's important for us to realize that it is very easy to look for other things and to look to other things to fulfill desires that we have. It could even be good desires that you have. Desires for lots of people to be impacted by certain stuff. It could be desires for, you know, your, your family to flourish and to thrive. But it's very easy to make an idol out of that desire. We need to make sure that we maintain the view of the cross. That just like with John Wimber, that, that he can walk into a meeting after being well known for, for going places and many people being healed and, and delivered and set free and these things. And he can walk into a meeting, he can stand, stand at the front and see the entire room get healed of all the things that they experienced. And then on another day walk in and nothing happens in the midst of that meeting that he could have wanted to. His response there is very impactful to me. And I hope that that's also impactful to you. Knowing that it is not my responsibility to perform so that people are affected. It is my responsibility to yield to the Holy Spirit and walk in humility and obedience. And then as I do that, I can bless whatever it is that the Lord is doing because I know that His will and His ways are greater and higher than anything that I could do. And so the pressure is off of me to perform. The pressure is off of me to create something. The pressure is off of me to have to make something happen. Instead, my position and my posture is I'm going to look at the cross. 
and I'm going to keep Jesus in my for in my in my in my uh, perspective, and then in doing that, I can see the Father's face, and I can feel the Father's love, and then I can live from that place, knowing that it is not by my will that things are done, but it's by the will of the Father. And so in doing so, I'm not going to pick up idols of my friends. I'm not going to pick up idols of my family. I'm not going to pick up idols of my job. I'm not going to pick up idols of performance. I'm not going to pick up idols of ministry because the Lord knows there's lots of people who are idolizing over ministry, feeling like they're doing the right thing, but in reality, they are obsessifying over a status, over their ability to be recognized, over their ability to be used, and all these things. And it's great to be used, but you cannot be used properly if you are not obedient. Obedience is better than sacrifice. We see that in the representation with Saul and with Samuel. When Saul was looking to please other people and to to keep his reputation well alive in the midst of man, instead of actually pleasing God and walking in obedience to what the Lord had asked for them to do. Obedience is always better than sacrifice. And so what things... Are we continue? I'm hitting idolatry really hard these last these last couple weeks, but I think it's something that we need to really be aware of in our lives. Who are we relying on for us to be able to walk in wholeness? Are we are we relying on people so that we can do this, or are we actually relying on the cross? Are we looking at what what Christ has called us into, or are we making compromises in our lives, saying that I think this is okay for me to just get away with because nothing bad is seemingly happening to me? Well, am I actually honoring God in the righteousness that I'm walking into? Or am I actually walking in what I deem as righteous, which is really unrighteous, because I'm fulfilling the desires of my flesh? Can I honor God in the midst of my days? If I was truly looking at him, if I was standing at the cross and I was seeing him right there crucified for me, could I honestly tell him that what I'm doing is honoring that sacrifice that he made? Or am I walking in selfishness because I'm, I would much rather do things my way because it just makes me feel comfortable? Father, we long to just, to just honor you and to love you the way that you love us. Lord, thank you for your patience for us. Thank you that you are much more patient with us than we are with you. And that we are with others. Lord, we apologize for being so busy-minded that that we have neglected relationship with you at times. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have idolized things instead of you. Forgive us for the times that we have idolized our friends instead of you. Forgive us for the times that we have idolized our family to the point of pushing away our relationship with you. Father, forgive us for for desiring for our way to be made known more than your way made known in our lives. Father, forgive us for being selfish. And in that selfishness, putting ourselves up as if we are God and claiming your name in place of it when it's really us that are trying to make these things happen. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have, we have elevated ministry over relationship with you. Lord, forgive us for the times that we are trying to prove ourselves with production, prove ourselves with things and being busy and doing stuff instead of just loving you in the process. Lord, help us keep the cross at the center of our attention. Help us remember what you did for us. 
on that horrible day. Help us not have a low view of you, thinking of you just as a human being that just walked around and that's all that you were and you just lived a pretty good life and that's it. And we're just martyred because you were good. And on the flip side, forgive us for those times that we have seen you as being far too distant and not even involved with us, not wanting anything to do with us. But Lord, let us see you as someone who loves us and who cares for us and who wants us close, who wants us dear. Let us see you for what, you've, what you are really are, for who you really are. Let us recognize your activity in our lives and let us surrender completely to your desires for us in the midst of that. Lord, help us be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. As we don't conform to the desires of our flesh, but as we, as we look at you and we look to fulfill the things that you want for us. Help us be the hands and feet of the body, going out and showing people just how it really is to be loved by God. Let us help people understand what it means to be a child of God and not be a slave to the world or be a slave to other people's ideologies. Let us not be people who beat others over the head with our religious thought processes, but let us be people who truly love others in the midst of their, their, their struggles, in the midst of their, their heartache, in the midst of their, uh, their growth, in the midst of all these things. And let us have grace and more grace and more grace and more grace for people. Let us be quick to apologize. Let us be quick to repent. Let us be quick to recognize your presence in our lives. We love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for him living a great and perfect life. Thank you for him delivering the good news so that we can further understand that it's not about activity, it's about the heart position that drives activity. Help us to honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, and everybody said, amen. If you would like prayer, we would love to pray with you. Um, otherwise, we need to go eat some good food, because I can smell it from here. So Lord, bless the food. Let it be nourishing and wonderful and filling to our bodies. Um, and let us enjoy great fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Make sure you guys sit with people. I hate seeing people having to sit by themselves. Sit with other people. If, you're, if you don't know somebody else, go take a seat with them and, and get to know them a little bit. It's always good to know people who are within the body. Love you guys. Have a great, great week. See, see those of you on Wednesday that come. And then for the rest of you guys, see you Christmas Sunday. We're going to be taking communion. Make sure you come for that. I'm very excited, very ready for it. And we're closing out our series on Athanasius' on the Incarnation. Have a wonderful Sunday.